Welcome to the Boomer Woman's Podcast. I'm your host, Agnes Knowles. The 2024 tagline for the podcast is, that was then, this is now. Design your own next chapter. My guest today might not be the person to help you with that. Well, maybe he is, but our conversation today centers around his dad, whose wisdom can help you design your own next chapter. It's a longer episode. Rob not only loves talking about his dad and his mom, but the book that was recently released is such food for thought that I enjoyed hearing him talk about it. I'll give you a bit of a clue. Mitch Album wrote the first book. Rob lived the reality. Listen in now. My intro is going to be a little different today. I have a few questions for my guest before I introduce him. Did Jack Lemon do a good job? Yeah, I mean, it's, oh, you want a yes, no answer. Uh, yes, no, I mean, I, I'm a film critic by trade, one of my professions, so I would have a lot to say, but I will just say yes. Okay. Uh, as far as you know, was Hank Azaria accurate? Yes. Okay. Were you and Mitch Album friends at all? Yes, and still are. Ah, very close, very close. That might answer my next question, because I was going to ask if he, he seemed like he was a special student, and I was wondering if you ever resented his relationship with your dad. No, never resented it. Um, we can talk more about that story. There was no contact with my father and Mitch um, for 16 years after Mitch graduated, as he explains in Tuesdays with Maury. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, you've just given it away. But my real introduction, <laughs> I rewatched a movie last night, and I cried again last night. So many of us know Mitch Album. The first book of his I ever read was his second book, The Five People You Meet in Heaven. His first book was Tuesdays with Maury. Today, my guest is the editor of another book, The Wisdom of Maury, Maury's son, Rob Schwartz. Rob, welcome to the Boomer Woman's podcast. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. Tell us about your dad. Well, I mean, a lot of people read Tuesdays with Maury, so I think they have a taste of who he was. He was really uh, a very loving man, someone who lived to teach. He talks about that in Tuesdays with Maury. He was a university professor for whatever it was, 35 years, and he loved to teach. He loved to discuss things with students, to exchange ideas. He was not one of these um, professors who lectured. All of his classes were discussions. Um, he taught sociology and social psychology. So it was the kind of field that, that opened itself up to discussion about, you know, who are we as a society? How do we lead our relationships? Those kind of things. He taught a course called Group Process, which was all about how do we deal with each other in groups. And needless to say, students loved him. And uh, there was man many reasons for this. He was, of course, extremely approachable for students. He was also not particularly uh, enthusiastic about the grading system. So it was pretty hard to fail my father's course. I mean, if you didn't come, if you didn't show up, then you would fail. But other than that, it was pretty hard to fail. As a father, he was amazing. He was always very present, um, very much, you know, enjoyed spending time together, also talking with myself and my brother and, of course, my mother. So, uh, I mean, I could talk about him with hours for hours and hours, but I guess that that's enough for now. <laughs> <laughs> Did you appreciate him enough when you were young? Yes. I mean, I have lots and lots of stories about that. 
um, as you know, when you're a child, you never can get a full understanding of things, obviously, because you only have your experience. You don't have anything to compare it to. So I, I used to get students coming up to me. My father was at Brandeis University all the time saying, oh, my God, you're so lucky to have him as a father. He's so wonderful. You know, I wish my father was like this. And of course, as a child, I was always like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, he doesn't let me do this or whatever. But, you know, as you get older, you realize they were actually right. He was a fantastic father. And most of these students did not have such a great relationship with their father. So they were kind of, you know, whatever, jealous or um, uh, had wished their father had been different. So yeah, I mean, I appreciated him quite a bit. We were extremely close, my dad and I, and and of all the people in the family, I was the most like him. So much so that I actually had to make a conscious decision when I became an adult to separate. I went to school in the middle of the country since my parents were so involved in academia in the Boston area. And then I moved to Japan as soon as I graduated university. And that's quite a ways away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair little ways. I had a son move across the globe too so i appreciate that now in the movie mitch learns he evolves and he finds out what is truly important in this adventure called life maury was your dad did you absorb all that from him or did you have to learn it along the way too i mean that's one of those questions where you know what what makes up a person <laughs> kind of question right i mean i think i absorbed it a lot if I had to give some self-analysis, you know, I would say I think I'm a very loving and open person as well. In some ways, maybe I'm I'm different than my father. There's other things too, you know, philosophically. I actually studied philosophy in university. My father was open to a whole wide range of ideas and read very widely. And I think that influenced me and, you know, also to be very interested in Eastern thought and move to Asia. I think that that was part of what my father exposed me to. So, I mean, that's a kind of question, again, I could talk about for hours. But yeah, I think that I absorbed a lot of, of what my father was putting out there, sure. It sounds like you absorbed a lot, even if you didn't realize it at the time. Exactly, exactly. When you're a child or a teenager, you don't exactly think about those kind of things. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so your dad, you found a manuscript in his desk several years after he had died. You've edited it. It's hard to say those two words together. I edited it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, into the wisdom of Maury, living and aging creatively and joyfully. Tell yeah. us about that. Sure. Well, there's two things I can tell you about the story of finding the manuscript. And of course, we can talk about the book. Let's uh, wind it back just a second. So actually, my father wrote this book from 1988 to 1992. So quite a while ago now, um, you know, getting on 35 years. And I actually, as I mentioned, had gone to Asia and I came back to our house in Newton, Massachusetts in the summer of 1985. And this was the last time that I lived in, under the same roof with my folks for, I uh, stayed there for about three months before I moved to Japan. And in those three months, my father was really concentrating on writing this book, this manuscript. So I had the opportunity to talk to him about it and bounce ideas back and forth. And he was very interested in what I had to say about it, even though I was quite a young man at the time when he was writing about aging, he was aiming this book at people over 55. So I had a very good background in what he was doing. And, you know, the uh, 
um, ideas in the book. And, you know, I had talked to him directly about it. Then I moved to Asia and I moved to Japan and my father got sick, as people know. And um, then uh, Mitch came back and wrote Tuesdays with Maury and he became well known, by the way, posthumously. My father was not well known at all. I mean, he was somewhat known for for different things in academia and etc but he did not become a national figure until tuesdays with maury was published well that's not 100 true because there were the nightline programs which were very very heavily watched so he was something of a national figure but of course tuesdays with maury changed everything and he was gone when that book was published he never read a word of tuesdays with maury so that all happened, and I used to come back and forth between Japan and Boston, and my mother still had the house and my father's study. And as you said, one day I was in the study, I'm a journalist writing you know, a story, and I popped open a desk drawer just to see what was in there, and lo and behold was this manuscript that my father had written from the first word to the last word. Some people have incorrectly stated that I put this book together from my father's notes or something like that. That's completely incorrect. My father wrote this book from the very first word, from the introduction to the last word. I mean, I added two essays on either end, but they're very clearly my essays. My father's writing, that was his writing from the beginning to the end. Yes, I edited it and we can talk about that. Um, but this is a book that he wrote and put a tremendous amount of thought into for four years and research. There's all kinds of newspaper articles and poetry and interviews that he's did. There's a whole series of different types of writing in there, not just his thoughts about, um, you know, aging creatively and joyfully, though. That's the theme of the book. And as soon as I found it in the desk, I realized that we had an opportunity now to publish this. And of course, it took a long time to publish for many reasons. But if you read it, you'll see how incredibly prescient it is. He was writing this a long time ago, and we're dealing with the issues that he's writing about now. I uh, haven't read the book yet, but from what I've read about the book, it seems like what he was writing about during those years is probably even more important, more vital today than it was when he was writing the words. Yeah, I mean, more vital is hard to say. I think it was vital then as well. The difference is that people are paying more attention to it now. You know, if in 1990 you had said, oh, you know, aging people can do anything and there's no reason that somebody should be, you know, not should retire or should, you know, withdraw from life. People maybe would have been less receptive to that idea. I think as a society, we're more open to the idea that age is not really a barrier. Ageism, you know, is one of the sort of last isms to fall. You know, we all know that sexism is horrible and misguided and racism is horrible and misguided and, and, uh, you know, um, all the rest of it. And ageism is sort of the last one to go down. But of course, any rational person knows that age is not really a barrier. You know, most people at any age can can accomplish anything they want if they put their mind to it, you know. Yeah, and keep on accomplishing. Okay, you have a talking point that I kind of was interested in. Uh, the top five secrets to living a long and happy life that Maury covers in the manuscript. Right. I mean, that's sort of, sort of like, yeah, we could call it a talking point. I'm not sure I use the word secrets. I usually use the word techniques or advice that my father gives. I'm not sure they're all secrets, but they are certainly, some of them are not things that you would think about, uh, but I'll certainly enumerate them for you. 
they're they're varied as you'll see and uh, go off in different directions the first one and this one is maybe surprising to people that my father talks about is that you know like i said he did a lot of research he talked to a lot of people he thought a lot about aging before he wrote this book and while he was writing this book and he realized that a lot of aging people or seniors you know humor sort of slips away from their life and he thought it was so important to have humor in your life to laugh as much as possible. So he keys in on this and says, you know, bring into your life whatever you find humorous, laugh as much as possible. Laughter is key to just remaining vibrant and feeling alive. And that's what this book is essentially about, remaining vibrant, remaining creative. And he thought that laughter was just extremely important. So, you know, he concentrates on that, laugh as much as you possibly can. Then the second one is in the completely the opposite direction, which is that he thought that meditation was a fantastic tool to calm your mind, calm your energy, focus your energy, you know, and and just just overall bring things down to a level where, you know, you're not worried about something, you're not thinking about anything, you're just, you know, breathing and existing. And he thought it was an absolutely crucial technique. My father started meditating sometime in middle age, but long, long before uh, he got ill. And then once he got ill, he really concentrated on it much more. And he thought it was a crucial technique. And indeed, studies have shown, like widespread studies have shown that seniors who meditate, I can't remember exactly what the figure it is, I think it's five years, live on average five years longer than seniors who don't meditate. So it is clearly an effective technique. So those are the two in very opposite directions. Then the other ones I don't think these ones are secrets, but I think that they are, you know, something that we can continually express and hopefully we'll people will take it on board. My father thought it was incredibly important to keep moving forward, keep learning, keep engaging with life. So he offers many different ways to do this. He basically says, figure out what you are interested in and pursue that. Keep learning doesn't mean studying something that you find boring just because you feel like you need to study or something like that, but figure out what is important to you and learn about that. And, you know, those interests will propel you to be more interested and more, you know, engaged with whatever it is. So figure out what's important for you and keep learning about that. Keep studying or keep, you know, pushing forward in that field, whatever it is, right? And then at the same time, he thought the relationships in our life are the most important thing. So, you know, honor and pay attention to and give time to your relationships. Obviously, your familiar relationships, your closest friends, you know, all of your friends. He even thought, you know, at any age, you can make new friends. And this goes actually along with the first, uh, sorry, the the um, technique that I just mentioned. If you're learning about something, you take a class in it, you're going to meet new people and maybe you can make new friendships. So the two, those two work together. And, you know, my father used to say something around the time of Tuesdays with Maury because that one, you know, he was facing death. And he used to say, when you're on your deathbed, you know, the size of your bank account isn't going to make the slightest difference. But the time that you spent with the people who you love and that love you, that's what you're going to remember. That's what's going to be valuable to you. And, you know, that's a good guide for how you should spend your time while you're alive and hopefully healthy. And then the last one, I mean, there's actually a couple more, but I'll give you five. Um, the last one is one 
that, pe- that people have to interpret as they like, right? My father is not giving you direction on this because it's such a widespread and sometimes controversial thing. But he said, it's important to develop a spiritual connection, whatever that means for you, right? So if that means organized religion, then great. If that means something more personal or something more, you know, out of the ordinary or something offbeat, as you, as long as it's a spiritual connection, which you feel and you honor and you feel is giving you some spiritual sustenance, then, you know, that's great. And this, this one is a little bit unusual for my father. I mean, he certainly developed that in the last years of his life. But, you know, um, he was an atheist most of his life. And, of course, he's born into a Jewish family and he was bar mitzvah in that. But he left that behind very quickly. You know, he became an academic. And when you become an academic, you're concerned with, you know, more concrete fields of study. But developing a spiritual connection, he thought, was very important, whatever that means to you personally. And, of course, that could go along with the meditation technique in some Eastern religions. It does. But that's totally up to you. And also, there are Christian thinkers who talked about meditation as well. There definitely are, Thomas Merton and other ones. Yeah, yeah. And this podcast is the Boomer Woman's Podcast. I mean, I have had people on discussing each and every one of those topics, and it's nice to see them come together in this book. Now, Now, I've heard you explain your father's writings as the tension of opposites. Can you explain Sure. It's it's not necessarily that I explained it that way, though hopefully I talk about it. I mean, he has a whole section in the book called The Tension of Opposites. And for him, this was a very important topic. He used it in his academic study, and many, many academics have used it. This is not an original idea for his. Many academics and many philosophers have alluded to this, to this idea. And of course, the idea is that everything in life is going to be a, a balance or a tension between two different opposites. I mean, you know, we're alive, but we're only alive for for basically a brief period of time. So we're facing death at all times. So you have these two opposites. You have to figure a tension or a balance between them. Everything is like that in life. There are two sides, and you need to figure out the proper balance. The proper balance between the opposites is is the way to live. So I'll give you an example from people's life that is maybe more people can more relate to. So we have the balance between spending time with friends and spending time by yourself. You know, both are important and you need to find the proper balance between the two. Or even things that we view as good and versus good and bad, like happiness and sadness. Right. We always want to be happy all the time. Nobody wants to be sad. But the point is, is that we wouldn't even really understand what it means to be happy without sadness. Right. So you need the two sides and you need to find a balance between them. Sure, we want to live more on the happiness side, but, you know, to be melancholy or things that happen that make us sad, you know, you need to embrace that. This is what my father says in the book. You can't ignore one side because we don't find it as palatable as the other. You know, if somebody you love passes away, you're going to be sad. You know, you need to embrace that. You need to understand that life is always a tension or a balance between these two opposites. And you need to find your own personal balance, which you're most comfortable with, which makes it, you know, best, the best way for you to live. And and I think too, correct me if I'm wrong, based on your dad's writings, teachings, is... As you said, you know, 
embrace the sadness when that person goes. Embrace the happiness when new life comes in or something joyous occurs. You Absolutely. know, you, you don't find a spot and then stick to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, there's there's other ways to look. And this is a very important concept to my father. And in this book, there's a whole chapter on it. So, for example, there are different kinds of tensions of opposites. For example, we have two words in English, loneliness and solitude, right? And solitude is a good thing, right? Sometimes it's good to spend time with yourself and ponder things. And of course, loneliness, we consider bad, you're sad, you're you know missing other people or whatever, but there's a balance between those two things. Sometimes you need to be alone and you need to, you know, whatever, calm your energy down. And then, so you need to find the balance between solitude and loneliness. So it's not only things that are completely opposite, but even things that are near, there's still a balance between them. Okay, so you found the manuscript. Mm. You then had to edit it. Mm. Was mm. that a strange process with your dad's words? It was a long process for, for many, many reasons. So uh, I write two essays in the book. The first one is more or less about my father and his life work as an academic, things that people may not know. And the second one is more about my mother. My mother was also a PhD in sociology. She had a private practice as a psychologist. She worked at MIT for decades and decades in the psychiatric clinic. And crucially for what we're talking about here, she edited most of my father's academic work. And some of it was very, very important, very well received. So she had a good idea on how to edit my father's work. So she put me on the path. I mean, this project started a long time ago. My mother has since passed away. She passed away two years ago. She was 98, so she she had a very long and joyous life. But um, she put me on the path to to edit it, and that was you know nice that someone who had edited my father's work before could steer me in the right direction. I wouldn't say that it was strange to edit it. As I said, I had a good idea of what was in the book. My primary focus of the book, and this was also, of course, influenced by my mother, was to keep my father's voice. My father has a very distinctive voice. You know, I can hear him speaking these words when I read the book, and that was my primary goal. And, you know, I think that that I accomplished that one. There there was, as I mentioned, the book was written over a four-year period, so there was a lot of repetition he didn't remember stuff. He never edited the book himself. So there was repetition from chapter to chapter, even telling the same story sometimes. So I had to go in and cut all that out. My father was an academic as well. So he didn't necessarily think in the way that sort of more, you know, general people think if he was making a list of things that are important, you know, if the list is 17 things long, that's just too long. You know, you need to cut it off at a certain point so people can grasp your list. You know, eight is plenty on any list. Right. So there was things like that that I had to do. But fundamentally, you know, I hope that I kept the the his voice and the the key points that he wanted to um communicate. I, I'm pretty confident that I did. Okay, you've mentioned your mom. I was actually going to ask you about Charlotte. Can you tell us more about your mom, like as a mom? Sure. As a mom, and I'm going to talk about her life work too, because I know that that in some ways, especially after my father got famous, that she felt a little bit like, you know, she wasn't as recognized or as, as celebrated as he was. So my mom was a really unusual woman. 
I was thinking about this a little bit because I know the gist of your prod- podcast. I don't know, you know, what what keywords you use, <laughs> but we can talk about them a little bit because um, I have a cousin who was maybe 25 years younger than my mom, and she's a real boomer, my cousin. You know, I don't consider myself a boomer. I'm right on the edge of it. When I was going to school, like we considered the 60s like ancient history, despite the fact it was only like eight years before, 10 years before, you know, the end of the 60s, we considered it ancient history. But so I don't feel like a boomer. But this this cousin, who is very close to my mother, is on my mother's side of the family, is a boomer. And we talked about this a lot. And my mother even talked about it. My mother didn't consider herself a feminist because she came from that generation where feminists meant burning bras and screaming about things and stuff. But she, her life was so feminist. Her For her master's degree at the University of Chicago, and she was getting a master's degree when women were not getting master's degrees in the 1940s, uh, she wrote about young Black women in Chicago neighborhoods and their possibilities at higher education. You know, she was concerned with women's issues her whole life. And she wrote articles about it, academic articles about it her whole life. And she taught at women's universities. She actually taught at historically Black colleges and universities as well, which was extremely unusual at her time. And I have many stories about that. Uh, She has a wonderful story about that. But essentially, she was the kind of woman who was pushing forward for women, even though she didn't call herself a feminist. She got a master's degree when women were not getting master's degrees. A little bit later, when there seemed more opportunity, she got a PhD. She worked at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, which is a very, you know, highly regarded school. She was constantly, uh, you know, pushing forward for women's rights at a time when you know, the feminist movement didn't really exist until the 60s, let's say. And, you know, she she was already middle-aged by the 60s, you know. And she was also a wonderful mom. She was a great contrast to my parents. So this is also kind of a tension of opposite story. You know, my father was very emotional, very much head in the clouds, idealistic, um, not practical at all not organized. His handwriting was terrible. You know, my mother was extremely well organized, extremely practical. She did all of the things in the family like that. She kept track of all of the finances. She's the one who, you know, kept track of the bank accounts and balanced the checkbooks and did all of those kind of things. So, you know, she was the one that scheduled everything. So they were a good match in that way, but they had very different personalities. My mother, obviously, her sort of organization and editing skills and some of her worldview, of course, you know, was absorbed. I absorbed as well. Both ends, your parents, you you absorb and you become an amalgam of them. So, you know, she lived a very long and generally very healthy life. She was very rarely ill. I can, you know, remember a few here and there, but essentially she was very rarely ill and You'll love this part. She worked at MIT for 30 years. Then she retired from MIT and she started a private practice as a psychologist where she did everything. She rented the office. She paid all the bills. You know, it was like a business. She ran her own business and she saw patients until she was 91 years old. So she was pretty much a get it done kind of person. (laughs) I love the stories of women sort of through those war years because they were pushing forward they were role models without ever realizing they were role models as opposed to my generation 
child of the 60s right. who who you know oh, we've got to be role models for our daughters and our granddaughters and yeah and i will admit there's a certain amount of that in this podcast from time to time sure. but um yeah you hear the stories of women of your mother's generation that were absolutely amazing so uh, yeah yeah and i mean I wonder if she would have considered herself a role model. I think in later life, yes. As an earlier life, maybe no. But I mean, her stories are incredible for, you know, what she what she did and what she accomplished. I mean, I'm quite convinced, though, in some ways she was more conventional than my father. My father was very unconventional even back in the day. And we're talking back in the day. We're talking like pre-war. My father was born in 1916. Just to just to let you know, they had me very, very late there. They actually had trouble conceiving. So I was born when my father and when my parents were really old by standards of that time. These days, maybe not quite as much, but in those days, really, really old. And uh, my father was very unconventional. And I think that my mother was a little bit more conventional, but she appreciated that. And that's why she chose him. And that's why they stayed together for whatever it was, you know, 45 years. And, you know, she was pushing forward and maybe challenging conventions in her own way, you know, which was quieter. And she was a very successful career woman. Like I said, she was at MIT. She was even writing articles about psychology and psychological practice with the psychiatrist in chief at MIT in the 70s and the 80s. So she was, you know, getting up there at that point in time. Um, and those articles, I've been told, are now being reappraised today for their contribution, you know, 30, 40 years after they were written. In case you saw me sort of looking over to my other monitor here, I love the photograph of your parents on the website. Your your dad looks like he absolutely adores your mom. And I just mm -hmm. love that photograph. It's such a nice photograph. Okay. And they're not yeah. they're not really young there, I don't think. No, no, they're not. No, they're not. I mean, they had a very rich, you know, what we, I guess we would call now later life. You know, we've established that you can do anything at any age. But, you know, uh, they both had university professorships by the time, you know, they were in their 40s. And that continued until, you know, both of them were in their 70s. My father continued to teach at Brandeis, though he was technically, you know, emeritus until he got ill until he got ill with ALS and was no longer able to do it. And, you know, they used to host parties. They had an incredible set of friends from, you know, academics to people who were non-academics. You know, this is the Boston academic community in the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s. So, you know, Noam Chomsky was a family friend. Um, you know, these really important academics um, like that would be, you know, they would be at their parties. Um, they would come to parties at our house. And uh, yeah, it was a very, very rich life. My mother, if you wanted, you asked originally about my mother. I mean, I could talk about her in all different aspects. You know, she would throw these parties and um, obviously be a participant in these, you know, intense intellectual discussions. At the same time, she was a gourmet chef. And I really mean that using that word specifically. She had like 30 years of gourmet magazine bound in her kitchen and she would go to recipes in those magazines to, to figure out what to cook, you know? And yeah, that was pretty, pretty amazing growing up. She tried to teach my brother and myself to cook and it really took with him. My brother is a fantastic cook and <laughs> he didn't take so much with me because I'm, like I said, more like my father, impractical <laughs> head in the clouds kind of person. <laughs> 
She sounds fabulous. That's great. Thank you for, for talking about her. Back to the book. Actually, let's go back to Rob Schwartz for a moment. Sure. Um, what is your philosophy of life and love now with Maury as your dad and, and him being gone? Wow, I mean that's a big question <laughs> to answer, answer okay. in three minutes. I'll do my best. You're also an editor. <laughs> yeah, also an editor. I studied philosophy. I lived in Asia for many, many years. I'm a journalist as well. I mean, let me see how how should I approach this question? Philosophy of life. Well, I mean, I think that uh, I am like my father, as I said, in which I feel that the most important things in life are our relationships. I mean, of course you know, establishing your career, having a career that you enjoy is extremely important. I feel really sad that a lot of people are forced into jobs that they don't enjoy just to, you know, put bread in the table. And that's kind of the system that we love on, live under. But I think it's really important to create a career that you enjoy. But without uh, having said that, the without, you know, people in your life who you love, friends, family and stuff, life is re really kind of empty. I mean, the thing that gives us meaning, and people always say, what is the meaning of life? The thing that gives our lives meaning is the people in our lives, from my perspective. I mean, I suppose you could be whatever, a scientist, and you get your entire meaning in your life from scientific experiments, molecules, or atoms, or whatever. That's fine for those people if that's how they approach it. But for me and for my dad, the most important thing in life is other people and your close relationships with them, the love that you share with them. Um, you know, my wife will tell you, I'm an extremely gregarious person. I mean, I try not to talk people's ears off, but I love just to meet strangers on the street and just share a moment with them and you know then it's gone and that's the the nature of life things disappear immediately but if you can share something you know some levity or something interesting with somebody and then move on that's important as well as you know the the love that you share with your wife and your relatives and your close friends i also think it's never too late to make new friends and new close friends you know, I love to meet people. I really do think, I'm sure this is going to sound super trite, but I really do think that like any new person I meet, I believe like this person could become a really close friend if we share the same interests, if we share the same approach to life, if we gel, this person could become really close at, you know, at any age, you can make a new close friend at 90 years old without a problem, you know. It's that old saying of, you know, what's, what's a stranger, but a friend you haven't met yet. So. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm going to ask this question, even though I'm pretty sure it sounds like your parents would have had you and your brother be individuals. But is there any pressure on you two to be sort of larger than life because you're the sons of a modern day philosopher? I don't think so. Uh, my brother, particularly, I mean, of course, he, you know, he was um, very, very, you know, loved by my parents and is an integral part of the family, but he hasn't really picked up the mantle of my father. I mean, of course, if it comes up, he'll say, you know, Maury is my father, but he hasn't really, you know, gone out into the world. He, he did a couple of interviews. Uh, we were brought on the Dr. Phil show, I think, maybe at the 10-year anniversary of the book. I think that's what it was. Maybe it was 15. I can't remember. Anyways, but he hasn't made that, done that much public speaking about it. I, on the other hand, am a journalist, and I actually have been on TV a lot for things not related to Tuesdays with Maury. Um, I write about music and film. 
So particularly when I was living in Japan, I was on the BBC a lot and other other networks. So I'm very used to public speaking. And of course, uh, talking about my dad as well. I used to, and I still do actually go, because you talked about the movie. There's also a play, you know, Mitch, Mitch wrote a play with a guy called Jeffrey Hatcher. And it's performed all over the country. And in fact, all over the world, because the book is very well known and it's a two person play. So it's very easy to put on in regional theater and stuff. So I've gone all over the country. And as I said, all over the world doing Q&A after the play, where I would find that the play is being performed and I would take it upon myself to contact the um, producers and say, I'm Maury's son. I would fly to your town on my own dime. And, you know, if you can find a bed for me to sleep in, I will appear after the play and be glad to do Q&A about the actual real life Maury Schwartz. And of course, inevitably, they're thrilled and the audiences are thrilled that they can get some firsthand information about Maury. So I've done that all over the country. So I was very used to speaking about my dad. And that was long before I, I finished editing this book and put it out. So I'm very used to speaking about my dad. I wouldn't say there's any pressure, which was your question. Conversely, I would say, and maybe you can tell from this interview, it's an absolute joy for me to speak about my father's. I mean, I say this when I do presentations about the book or Q&A. It's like, I will sit here for as long as you like and talk about my dad because it's so enjoyable for me to talk about my father. You know, usually someone will come in and do Q&A. I got to leave now, you know. It's like, no, I will literally talk about my father all day because I enjoy it so much. And there's so many stories. And he really was a remarkable human being. And I mean, I don't think that he would have necessarily said this. Maybe he would have thought it. But I do think that he is a role model for people to take up his values and how he lived his life. I'm not sure if he would have said that or not. He would have said, I live my life, you know, in the way that I think is best. But I do think it is the best way to live. I mean, I do think that being loving and being loving to all of the people around you and trying to create a sense of community with that, you know, relationships, that is the best way to live. And that the thing that gives our lives meaning is other people. I, I pulled three. It was, would have been easy to pull like 200 quotes out of, out of your dad's interviews and, you know, all the things I've looked at, listened to and read. But I put, pulled three out and I'm going to just make a comment about them. But if, if you feel free to jump into perhaps the most obvious one because of the movie is death ends a life, not a relationship. And I think as we get older, that just becomes so true. Absolutely. Absolutely. When my father first said, said that, I had to think about it for a while. And of course, if you hear he was still alive when he said it, if you haven't lost anybody, it's it's, um, you know, it's a little harder to process that. But when you do lose somebody really important to you, like a parent, you realize how true it is. Oh, yeah, it's it's absolutely true. And I still have a relationship with my father. I go to the grave all the time. It's here in Newton, Massachusetts. I uh, think about him all the time. I read his words, you know, all the time. I have not only this book and, you know, other books. There's other books that he wrote, all of which, bar one, are academic. There's uh, one that he contributed to, which was more political. But, you know, I have other things that he wrote as well. I have interviews that he did. I have videotape that uh, is just him talking to friends. When he got ill... I got a video camera and I set it up 
So, you know, because we knew he wasn't going to be around for that much longer. So I have hours and hours of videotape of my father just talking to his friends. And in fact, I sent the videotape to Mitch after my father passed. And Mitch based some of the scenes in Tuesdays with Maury on videotape that I shot. Specifically, we had these letter writing sessions after he appeared on Nightline with Ted Copley, actually appeared three times. But the first time the show was a big hit, people wrote letters to him and we would sit around the table. This is also described in Tuesdays with Maury and answer the letters. This is actually my big cameo in Tuesdays with Maury. (laughs) And I have videotape of those letter writing sessions. So we're all talking about how to respond to various letters and stuff like that. And I have hours of videotape of him with friends, including him with Mitch and uh, Mitch's wife, Janine, who sings to him. She's a, she's a vocalist professional and she sings to my father, which is a scene in the play of Tuesdays with Maury. I actually have that on tape. Yeah. I have this theory that, you know, obviously nobody lives forever, but they, they can live forever in a way by the stories uh, I have a page on one of my websites, stories my mother told me. And, you know, my grandchildren now are getting snippets of their great-grandmother through those stories and things like yeah, that. That's so, yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there is a, a sort of a tension of opposites there. You know, we as people are sort of connected to the personality or the personhood of, let's say, your mother or your grandmother, Right. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depends how you look at it, those things eventually will fade. But hopefully the ideas and, you know, the the love that they put into the world, that's what connects with people. And that's what goes forward, whether it's connected to their personhood or not, becomes less important. So you have that tension between personhood and just the ideas or the love themselves, you know. I was going to throw this in there. You are a philosopher. It's fabulous. Mm. <laughs> um, okay. My next quote, or the next quote, I won't, it's obviously not mine. I, I want written on every mug and t shirt out there take responsibility for yourself. Yes, sure. And then this is a big problem in our society. I mean, without getting too political, and this isn't, you know, talking about either party or anything like that, but that we've just raised a society, we've just somehow created a society where people want everything handed to them. They don't want to have to take responsibility. They don't want to have to think about what their part is. And I mean, you know, again, without getting too political, this is what happened with the with the pandemic. People were like, well, my body, my choice. It's like, well, we have this thing called public health, where the health of the society is dependent on you. If you're going to be spreading disease because you refuse to, you know, do something, then that is a problem for all of society. And you don't get to choose that you can make other people sick. It's along the same lines. We need to take responsibility for ourselves and how we affect other people. And that has really been lost in our society. And I should emphasize, it's really our society, right? We as Americans don't really think about the rest of the world. And the rest of the world, especially places where I've lived, is incredibly different. I mean, in Japan, the idea 
of take responsibility. They don't even have to say it because they have such a group oriented society that they are just constantly taking responsibility. I mean, the, what you would say to the Japanese is like lighten up a little bit is the opposite because they are so constantly taking responsibility for everything, everybody around them, you know, and but it's just so dearly lacking in American society. And it, it's sad. And we all know we have this society that is so hyper focused on success and fame and money and all of those things. And you see people get those things and they're not happy. Wow. Big surprise. You know, they're not happy because they don't have any important relationships in their life. They don't have any love. They don't have anything that gives themselves meaning. Sure, you can be happy that people around the world know your name, but that's a pretty fleeting and empty pride. And as I said, what was really going to give your life meaning now, if you use your fame to help people and to create things that are actually helping people who need help, then that's something totally different. And then you're on the right track, you know. Yeah. I'm actually in Canada and we Canadians are used to sleeping with the elephant. And unfortunately we are becoming more and more like the elephants. I'll just yeah, I mean, I, I, this may be a little controversial for your listeners in Canada, but I've spent time in Canada. And I mean, I love the fact that, you know, obviously you guys are a separate culture and a separate country, but I think that you suffer from the same problems that, that you suffer, maybe not as deeply, but that that is happening here in the United States. And I don't think that's really a, a new thing. I mean, certainly there are cultural differences and certainly your social system is much better than ours. There's no, there's no doubt about that health system, let's say. But I think that the society is similar in that people are focused on career and money and stuff, certainly well more than, let's say, Japanese society or some other very different cultures, you know. Yeah. And I just I, I didn't say that to separate us, but more to say we are more and more. Um, yeah. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. The thoughts of Americans. I have lots of Canadian friends, right? So I'll give a shout so out. Do I. Lots of friends. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet you do. Lots of friends in Montreal, lots of friends in Toronto, and lots of friends in Vancouver. And they're pretty different. You know, I tell people, just as we're talking about Canada, and you can tell I, I love and have a deep interest in Canada, I tell people that the most European city in North America is, well, there's two, but I like to say Montreal because that's where most of the filmmakers are and I'm deeply interested in film, but actually probably the most European city is Quebec City, right? Okay. But those cities are so much more European than anywhere else in North America. You almost feel like you're in Europe when you're, when you're in those cities. Well, I'm going to make it three because I, I think it's an age thing too, but Boston. I love yeah, Boston. See, I'm from Boston. You realize that, right? Yeah, no, I, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think so. People say that, and perhaps it's the most European city in the United States, but that's like not saying very much. Boston has its own character. Some of the streets, you know, look like Europe. We have cobblestone streets. We used to have gas lamps. Those have now been replaced, but the, the structures are still there. In any case, it's, yeah, I think that Boston has its own character. I mean, maybe a little bit, let's say like Cambridge, it's like Europe is a lot of intellectuals, a lot of universities, but Boston has its own character as a city. And yeah, I, I really don't feel like it's similar to Europe, not in the way that Montreal is, let's say. Okay. For, for me, it was the age thing. And I will yeah. admit, I was in Boston decades ago. My son has just recently moved to Boston. Oh, and yeah. and he said the same thing. What are you talking about? Mom? <laughs> so, yeah. you know, yeah, maybe I mean, my, my memories are old. 
I'll give you a few facts. I mean, and, you know, facts can be twisted any way you like, but they've done these studies of which cities the people walk the fastest, talk the fastest, give change the fa fastest, and Boston continually tops those studies. People here are really like in a hurry, don't have time for you. We were historically, though, I really think this has changed a lot, terrible drivers. I think it's much better now, but, you know, just very rude, just cutting people off stuff. It's not the same now, but it, it's kind of a trait of Boston, kind of in our own world, you know, a little bit obnoxious, like a mini New York. I would much say Boston is closer to a mini New York. And of course, we have the big rivalry with New York than than it is to Europe. It's not the friendliest city in the world. Then again, Europe is not necessarily friendly. But I say this all the time, and Bostonians really hate it when I say it. But yeah, if you compare us to like Canada or the Midwest or even the West Coast, certainly the South, Boston's not particularly a friendly city. It's, it's you know, it's an intellectual city. There's a lot of thought going on here. But yeah, I wouldn't say it's very friendly. <laughs> the best part of these interviews is these digressions. They're, they're fabulous. Right, strange, strange. Um, I, have, I have one more quote from, from yeah. your dad. And it really hit home with me because I've had a career in elder care. I still work with frail elderly. And it's this culture is so stuck on death in terms of its fear, hiding it, not knowing what to do with it. And, you know, I volunteered at hospice. I mean, death was such a part of my life for a lot of years. And I know my mom told stories about grandfather, you know, dying in the home and being kept in the home and her as a child being just part of that and and yet now it's like people just don't even want to use the word yeah i mean i think we're all very aware of that that this culture um north american culture in particular i think but maybe all of western culture has a real taboo around death and obviously that that is stoked by fear I mean, I think it's changing. I think Tuesdays with Maury, people cite Tuesdays with Maury as the beginning, you know, a big step forward in that. Obviously, my father talked about death a lot in the Tuesdays with Maury period and was facing death. And yeah, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, it would be, it would benefit us all if we could have a more open conversation about it. And, you know, it's, uh, as my dad would say, it's inevitable part of life. I mean, you make this <laughs> agreement when you're born that, you know, one day you're going to die. And none of us know, you know, what happens after death. So uh, to have any fear about it is kind of silly, but we're humans and that's the way it is. My father read a lot and thought a lot about the afterlife when he was ill. And he wouldn't give you sort of very specific, you know, ideas, but he came to a much more sort of holistic idea. I think he had it before, but concentrated on it more after, towards the end of his life. And I'll tell you the little story that he used to love to tell, and this may be familiar to, I think it's in the play, if I remember correctly. So he tells this story of the two waves bouncing along in the ocean and they're, you know, it's in the sunshine and they're bouncing along, falling and rising, you know, breaking, and they're both ecstatic, having a great time. And then all of a sudden one wave gets really depressed. And the second wave asks, what's wrong? And the first wave says, no, you don't understand. We're going to hit the shore and we're going to be nothing. And the second wave says, no, you don't understand. You're not a wave you're part of the ocean. 
So that was the that was my father's philosophy about it. We're all part of a larger whole that we all participate in this, you know, this um, energy of life and what happens after death, you know, is unknown, but but he believed that we're part of a larger energy. So energy is never lost. It just transforms. Now I'm now I'm giving further detail. I'm not exactly sure how would you express it, but I think that he would express it something like that. Yeah, yeah. And and I'm I'm not sorry. You you did get emotional and I'm I'm not sure my next question. You can ask me anything. Okay. How awful was it watching ALS overpower your dad? Yeah, it was very tough. It was very tough in, once again, there was uh, this tension of opposites. It was very tough watching him get sicker and sicker. And when he was diagnosed with ALS, which is in July of um, 1994, by the way, Mitch has this wrong in the book. Mitch has him going to a doctor's office. That's not what happened. The doctor actually came to our house. I remember sitting at the dining room table in our house the doctor gave the diagnosis. He said, you have 12 to 18 months to live. And my father lived 16 months. It was like exactly accurate diagnosis. So we knew that that he was going to die, of course. And yes, watching that and watching him deteriorate was very tough. I think the toughest time for me, and I remember this specifically, I was home to get that news. And then I went back to Japan. Before I went back to Japan by myself, uh, you know, I burst into tears and was incredibly devastated by the news. You know, once you sort of take on board the news, then it's, you know, sad, but you're dealing with it in your way. But the first time you hear the news is is incredibly difficult and, and devastating. But the tension of opposites part here is that it was very hard to watch him get sicker and sicker and lose the use of his limbs and things like that. On the other hand, the amount of dignity and the amount of strength that he approached it with and, you know, the ability to continue to interact with people and give people his, you know, ideas and wisdom, if we dare use that word, since it's in the title of the book, (laughs) um, you know, that was sort of awe-inspiring. So you had this tension between someone who was slipping away and someone who was handling it with incredible dignity and grace and love. And I think that that's the case, you know, in a lot of cases where somebody, people have these life challenges and they rise to it. Obviously not everybody, but the people who do, they rise to it with such dignity and such grace that, you know, it inspires you. A a constant thread throughout everything I looked into, listened to about your dad was him talking about giving and not taking at this time. Exactly, exactly. And that was his philosophy, you know. That's when he said that he was most alive, when he was giving to people and interacting with them, you know, and um, not just just sort of lying there being a a patient or a a victim and and taking. I mean, he also took, he also received care and he enjoyed that to receive care. But, you know, he felt most alive when he was giving and interacting with people. Absolutely. He said that many times. Okay, I'll be 70 next year. Our listeners are boomer women. So many thoughts, ideas, concepts from Tuesdays with Maury resound with us because of our age, our experience, our wisdom. It sounds like we can expect a whole bunch more of that with this book. 
Yeah. Um, so we haven't actually mentioned the title of the book more than once, but it's called The Wisdom of Maury. It's very rich and very deep. My father aimed it at people over 55, but the subtitle, as you mentioned, is Living Joyously and Creatively. It's really about that. So I think it speaks to people of any age. And I really do believe that, you know, if you get a copy of this book and you read it, it will help you, even if you're a very balanced and, you know, forward-thinking person, or even if you're not a very balanced and forward-thinking people. There's so many different ideas in there. And also, as I expressed there's so many different types of writings. It's not just a narrative by my father, but he interviews people. He brings in other people's stories. He uses newspaper clippings. He uses passages from other people's writings that he thought hit the nail on the head. He uses poetry. He tells stories himself. And because of all of this, I also had some really strong ideas about the design of this book. So I don't know if you've seen it, but it is super colorful. The, the um, front of the book is super colorful. Not only that, I have color running through the book. So you'll see some pages have sort of like a blue tint to them or some have a pink tint. One of the early reviews of this book on Amazon, the woman wrote, oh, I must have gotten a defective copy because it's got all these colors in it. And I was like, no, obviously on purpose. Like, read the book and see if you can find the resonance between the way it's designed and the, the ideas in the book. And even I use different typefaces and even um, some typefaces resemble handwriting because I wanted to sort of you to have that personal connection with my dad. So it's a real whole experience reading the book. And I really feel that anybody, you know, who is open to it would be touched and moved and, you know, motivated by this book, The Wisdom of Maury, Living Joyously and Creatively. Our listeners can't see you, but I will say that we've gone through a fair number of subjects as we've chatted here. There is a joy that comes over your face when you talk about this, mm. this book of your dad. So, thank you. Thank yeah. You. Yeah. Like I said, I would talk about him. I know your listeners only have a limited amount of time, but I would talk about him for hours and hours. I'll just throw this in there just because um, I'd love to mention it and it'll shock some people. So, as I said, I did Q&A after the play all around this country and all around the world. Particularly, I did a couple in Japan where I lived, and that's not surprising, but particularly the play is massively popular in China. Now, I could tell the whole story of how that happened, but it is. It's been performed over 250 times at the most prestigious theaters in, uh, in Beijing and uh, Shanghai. And I did Q&A after the play in a theater with thousands of people attending and so, you know, wrapped and involved in the story. I did presentations in, it was in Shanghai, where it was just me and the actors playing my dad and um, Mitch without the play even being performed. Thousands of people came to attend just to hear us talk about it. And it's just amazing how it reaches across cultures. I mean, China and Japan, both of them are quite different culture than ours. I mean, I can understand actually why this story has a resonance, particularly the Tuesdays with Maury story, because 
sort of an older man and a younger man, a, you know, a teacher and a disciple, if you will, in Chinese culture and Japanese culture is very resonant with their cultural traditions. So it just so happens that this really resonates with him. But but the point is, I mean, the Tuesdays with Mori have been translated into 40 different languages. Even the wisdom of Mori, I already have about 12 or 14 different languages. Mm-hmm. So the, you know, this is cross-cultural. This reaches across the entire world and speaks to us, you know, on a real human level. And I'm really overjoyed about that. Where do we find the wisdom of Mori, the book? I mean, I think that you can find it at at any bookstore. The publisher doesn't like if I point out particular um, well-known online. Okay, where where do we find stores. you on the world wide web? Oh, oh on the I world wide web, that's easy. That's that's easy. I have a website, as you know, yeah. which is just wisdomofmori.com. You can write to me there. I will respond to it. Um, you know, we have a a section to reach out. I respond to everybody. There are links there where you can order the book. I mean, it's available on Audible. It's available, you know, on spoken word. It's available in bookstores. What I do ask people, and this is also of your choice, if you read it and you find it valuable, please leave a review somewhere, wherever you review books. I mean, I will run through a few sites here just because there's so many. You can, there's a site called Goodreads. You can leave a review on. Of course, you can leave a review on Amazon. You can leave a review on Barnes and Noble. Those are the three big ones, but any place because it really helps to get the word out there. If you find it valuable, there's so many books, there's so much stuff out there. There's so many things to take people's attention. And I think this is something that's really valuable. And as you know, I'm really working hard to get the word out. So yeah. And you're on social. Oh yeah. I have a Facebook page. I don't think we have a wisdom of Maury Facebook page. We should do that, but I have a Instagram page. My Instagram is Rob, R-O-B underscore schwa, S-C-H-W-A. So, because Rob Schwartz was taken, all the incarnations were taken. So just Rob Schwa. And I mean, but I, I think if you're interested in this book, the website, I also have a YouTube channel, which you can look up is Wisdom of Maury, which I have lots of video of my father and of myself also. Um, we did actually have an offering on... I wonder what the URL is. I should know off the top of my mind. There's this company that's trying to start an online marketplace. And they came to me with the idea of like, oh, we should offer some of this really rare stuff like video that I have. So it's actually for sale on the name of the company is Block Apps. The name of the web host that hosts the online store is Mercata, M-E-R-C-A-T-A. I think if you do a search for it, you could find it. I mean, that's, you know, specific stuff. But the the website, wisdomofmori.com, has lots of video up for free. And I have a YouTube channel with stuff up for free that people can watch, video of my dad. There's actually a lot of video, video that I shot. And also, he was on a bunch of programs before uh, the illness and stuff like that, talking about different things. Um, he was one of the originators of the peace studies program at Brandeis. So he talks about that. He talks about um, mental health in general, um, public health and mental health, because that was his field. Um, So those programs done in like whatever the 80s, I have video of them. And I think some of them are up on our YouTube channel. I should put more up. Okay. Website. Uh, is always in the show notes. And I put as many links as I can find on your page at our website. 
Great. Be before we close, can I ask you a personal question? Sure. What is One Topia? Uh, so One Topia is a mental health benefit festival that I'm developing with two other guys, uh, real visionary guys, an artist from Germany, musical artist from Germany, and an entrepreneur and uh, financial guy, um, Evan Clausen um, and Simon Bogdanovich are the two other guys. It's LA based, but we're probably going to hold it in Las Vegas in September of 2024, full benefit festival. None of us are collecting any money. We've started a foundation. All the money will be distributed to mental health groups. It's to raise awareness about mental health. We think that there's a serious mental health crisis in the United States, and that's what it is. You can go to the um, uh, webpage for that, OneTopia, O-N-E-T-O-P-I-A, OneTopia.com, and the information is there. You know, we'll be announcing artists and uh, festival dates and all of those sort of things. And I have to say, the visionary for this is Evan Clausen. He is a, an, a musical artist uh, out of Germany, though he doesn't live in Germany these days. And this is his vision. And, you know, I'm just helping with it. Excellent. Okay. I'll add that link in too. That'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. Listeners, if you have thoughts on today's show, please talk to us. Leave comments where you're listening, or if you're listening at the Boomer Woman's podcast at boomwithabang.com, scroll to the bottom of the page and talk to us there. Share your wisdom. Share wisdom learned from someone else. Share your favorite Maury Schwartz wisdom. And of course, leave stars and reviews where you can. They help us grow. And share this episode. And then go out and buy two copies of Maury's book to give away. Well, one to give away, one to keep. Because uh, we can all use more wisdom even at this age. Rob Schwartz, thank you for being my guest today, sharing more of your dad and, and your mom with us. I uh, really appreciate it. No, it's my pleasure. As you can tell, a lot of people say it's a catchphrase, my pleasure. It really is my pleasure to do it. <laughs> I can tell. Thanks so much. Have a great rest of the week. Thank you.